Hi. Hello. What's your name? My name is Zippy. Rap. R-A-P-P. And can you describe where we are? Um, we're in the second holiest city in Israel, Hebron. Um, and we're here for the 50th anniversary celebration since our return to Hebron in 1967. Um, and there's going to be a concert tonight and a lot of um, like fireworks display. And it's a very exciting day. Yeah, you, you look pretty excited. <laughs> I am. It's exciting. Bibi. We're at uh, Kikar Rabin, Rabin Square. It's a huge uh, square inside, uh, in the middle of uh, Tel Aviv. And it's a very, very important place because this is where our late Prime Minister Rabin got assassinated. And this, this is a place where many important things happened. Maybe this is the starting of a new important thing that will happen. The main message here is 50 years and that's enough and a two-state solution. My name is Itai Mautner. What do I do, you want to know? Uh, I'm an artistic director of the Jerusalem Season of Culture and I edit and host a new TV cultural show. I came to show my uh, respect and my beliefs in the messages that are uh, thrown out of this big stage that we're standing next to right now. To break out from this loneliness that sometimes I feel. Last week, within the span of just two days, I got to see two very different Israels. The first was in the heart of the West Bank, in Hebron where Rami Kleinstein, an Israeli pop star, was performing in front of Me'arat HaMachpelah, the tomb of the patriarchs, where Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah are all buried. I don't like to call it the tomb of the patriarchs, I like to call it the tomb of the founding fathers and mothers. I don't like the word patriarchy so much, it's a kind of lame, you know, anachronistic word. I like to call it the fathers and mothers, it's very simple, or the mamas and the papas. Making it hip. Well, just making it lively, and yeah, I guess making it hip is fine. That's Ishai Fleischer, the international spokesman for the Jewish community of Hebron. And we were basically kicked out of our town since 1929. 1967 we come back, and uh, we've been in the process of trying to reestablish Jewish presence here, reclaim our uh, ancestral place here and our, and our properties. And uh, now this uh, small and brave community uh, is a beacon uh, for hundreds of thousands of people who visit here every single year. So thinking about the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, what does it mean to you to be standing here today, and what do you think reflecting back on 50 years um, of settlement here? Well, um, we're talking about what can really be seen as a miracle. So it's a, it's a dual message tonight, one of celebration, one of a kind of a, um, demonstration of sorts to say, this is ours, we're here, we have every historical right to be here, we're not going to give it away in any solution. Okay, that's absolutely ridiculous because it would undermine every narrative uh, that we have that, that we're Jewish people that are rooted here. If we're not rooted in this place, we're not rooted in Tel Aviv. And so uh, we're of course fighting the two-state solution and all, all those proclamations. And we're telling the world, and we're telling ourselves, we're telling the Jewish people, mostly we're telling Israel and the government of Israel, Hebron's here to stay. That's a reality. Uh, the Jewish people love Hebron, and uh, help us build it.
So we're not trying to kick anybody out, but we are trying to assert our sovereignty here and normalize life and certainly uproot the jihad uh, in order so that normal people can live here normally. But the left-wing demonstrators I talked to at the rally in Tel Aviv two nights later don't think that there's anything normal about the Jewish settlement in Hebron. Tali Kayam is an independent curator who lives in Tel Aviv. I'm ashamed of what's happening today in Hebron. The fact that there are streets where Palestinians cannot walk on, that feels to me like Germany of, you know, 38, when my grandmother couldn't step in the street of Warsaw because she was Jewish and she had to wear something, you know, in order for her to be recognized as a Jew. And what are you doing here tonight? Uh, I'm actually a spectator, mostly. I am left-wing, but I feel like a lot of the opinions that are rumbling around aren't really mine. What does the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War mean to you? Uh, Me personally, I know that when I have a kid, when I have a son, I won't send him to the army. Uh, I feel like all these wars, in hindsight, they're totally crazy and... It's bloodshed. My mom lost her brother in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. So that's why I feel like very strong in my belief that all these wars are, you know, obsolete. It brings us no place. And in the end of the day, the place he got killed in the Golan Heights, they might just give it back in order to have peace. So he died in vain. And I could have had, you know, cousins and my mom could have had nephews, and, and none of it's possible for just a piece of land that today nobody even lives at. You know, you've never been there, I'm sure, in Filon. So... Everything that I come across in my life has to do with the 50 years. Has to do with, uh, with the heartbreak of it, the sadness of it. It's like a post-traumatic society that we live in and the Palestinians live in. And I see it in, with, with my children in the kindergarten, and I see people are talking in the streets, and I see it in Facebook, and I see it everywhere. Meanwhile, back in Hebron, people were singing a different tune. Um, I think it's just a huge milestone in the Jewish people's uh, growth in Israel that we've been in Hebron for 50 years. I think it's an incredible, um, it's an incredible thing to celebrate. It's a sign that we, you know, we have a future here and that our presence is strong and it's important. Jenya Fleischer and her nine-year-old granddaughter Leah were standing nearby. What brought you here tonight? Oh, it's Yom Hebron. It's 50 years uh, since liberation of Hebron. It's a very big thing for us. I, I feel extremely happy, you know, like Hebron is, uh, is our connections to our roots. And it's a tremendous privilege to be able, you know, to come to the place when our mothers and fathers are buried. And it's, it's where our roots are and it's where, like, source of our life and energy here. I'm very happy to be here. You came here with your grandma tonight? Yes. We're going to show about how, how we won this place and how it belongs to us. And, and it's the place of our homeland, the, the place where all our fathers and mothers are. Okay, thanks so much, Leah. 
You're welcome. Goodbye. Just as we parted, the fireworks illuminated the sky. Yeah, we liked the fireworks. That was fun. It was a nice surprise. Fireworks are beautiful. They're really beautiful. Wish there were more. A bit short. Too short. All right, so we all know that Israel is politically fragmented, that there's a left and a right who have very different sensibilities about the ongoing conflict with the Palestinians, and also very different dreams about what Israel should and will look like. We all know that the West Bank settlements are controversial, celebrated by some and lamented by others. None of that's new. So why did we end up going to these two rallies? Why now? Well, it's because these days, as I'm sure you've noticed just about everywhere, we're marking 50 years since the Six-Day War in June 1967. And that war, those six days, it's pretty safe to say that they've brought us to where we are today. Even though very few people grasped it at the time, the young, victorious state of Israel emerged from that war a different place. Not only had we tripled our territory, conquering the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Old City, and the Golan Heights, but we also inherited a large Palestinian population that we've been controlling, slash occupying, slash administering, call it whatever you want, ever since. So that war is really like the starting point of it all, and it has a complicated legacy. In Hebron, I heard things like, When I was um, a young boy of uh, 12 years old and the war broke out and I lived in a small town outside of Toronto and we had heard that all the the Jews were being slaughtered and killed and, and Israel was being destroyed, even in our small little town we were all afraid and we were all praying and then the news started to come out on the positive side. So for me to be here 50 years later, this is huge. It's very emotional. I'm on cloud nine, okay? <laughs> I don't know if it comes across, but I'm on cloud nine. Okay. Yuli Edelstein, the speaker of the Knesset, called the victory a miracle. Hebron is the DNA of the Jewish people. This here is our genetic code, Naftali Bennett, the Minister of Education, declared. But in Tel Aviv, on the other hand, people like 65-year-old Avraham Milgram, who came to Israel from Brazil in the early 70s, view that war as the beginning of a dangerous, downward spiral. Look, the Six-Day War was a war that uh, we, we, we couldn't choose. It was a, a big victory, but uh, at the same time, it's a big tragedy for both people. The legacy is uh, it's a, it's a heavy legacy. So we are living in difficult days too much, and we, we should change it. What's clear, then, is that regardless of where you stand on the matter, The 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War is an opportunity for everyone to pause, to think, to evaluate, 
Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So, while everyone else is busy analyzing the deep meaning of the last half century, we decided in our episode today, Peace Now, Almost, to go back to the days immediately following the Six-Day War, and to a little-known saga that could have, perhaps, changed the face of the Middle East as we now know it. Here's Yochai Meital. Our story begins with the radio, or to be more specific, with one radio station broadcasting out of Ramallah. It begins with two reserve officers sent out on a mission. It begins in 1967. In mid-May, Gamal Abdel Nasser, the popular Egyptian president, demanded that the UN withdraw its peacekeeping forces from Gaza and the Sinai Peninsula. A few days later, Egypt blockaded the Straits of Tehran, effectively cutting off Israel's main oil supplies. The Egyptian army amassed troops in the Sinai, and Israel too mobilized forces to its southern border. And as all this drama was taking place, a 37-year-old accountant and IDF reserve officer by the name of Dan Bavi was anxiously waiting to be called up for war. The few weeks leading up to the Six-Day War were very vague. It was unclear what's going to happen. There was a lot of tension in the air. That tension was, of course, resolved at exactly 0745, on the morning of June 5th. Within just four days of its preemptive strike on Egyptian airfields, Israel had conquered vast swaths of land. And Dan, whose unit had been deployed in the Jerusalem area, was released home for the evening. After kissing his wife and hugging his kids, he picked up the phone and dialed his best friend, Mossad operative Dave Kimchi. And Dave said, Oh, it's so good that you phoned me. I have just the right kind of assignment which your help would be very appreciated. His assignment was to try to reopen the Hashemite Broadcasting Service, in other words, the radio service of the Kingdom of Jordan. Now, as Dan explained to me, the 60s in Israel, it was a totally different world back then. One in which it made total sense for a Mossadnik to ask his best friend to join him on a sensitive mission. In any case, Dan was up for the challenge. The very next day, the two of them got into a car and headed into the newly conquered territories. So we drive to Ramallah. This was early in June, late spring. The fruit trees on the roads were blossoming. It was an unbelievable place. As you're imagining Dan's idyllic description of the road to Ramallah, bear in mind that the battles were still raging. This was day five of the Six-Day War. Still, that didn't stop them from driving right up to the house of the radio station manager, one Mr. Ude, 
Dunn and Dave walked up, knocked on the door, and he wasn't in. But one of the locals told them, There's a man living here across the street that I think would be very good that you meet. And his name is Aziz Shkade. In 1948, Aziz Shkade had fled Jaffa with his family and had since become one of the most prominent lawyers in Ramallah. Aziz walked right up to the two Israeli officers, offered his outstretched hand, and said, And now we can make peace. It was a total surprise. And for a minute, we thought, we thought the guy's nuts, that he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Shake hands, he offers us coffee, nice little Arab coffee, introduces us to his family, his wife, his four children. I remember that very well, of course. Uh, I was already 16 then. That's Raja Shkade, Aziz's son. I'm a lawyer and a writer, and my father was Aziz Shkade, who was a lawyer also. Back in the Shkade's living room, an unusual conversation was taking place. They started talking, and he uh, said he thought that uh, the best way for the conflict to end is immediately to, to do something. And then they said, well, what do you propose should be done? We really didn't take him seriously. We thought, this is a dreamer. Where, do, where does he live? But as we went on and we started listening to him, he came out with a program of how to make peace between the Palestinians and Israel. He envisaged the whole thing, and he envisaged uh, all aspects of what should happen. Convene an ad hoc constituent assembly of 43 Arabs. How it should happen. Establish a government of 12 or 13 ministers. On what basis it should happen. Based on the temporary green line borders reaching out a full peace treaty. And, and he also believed it should happen very quickly because he knew if it didn't happen quickly, it would be disrupted by all kinds of forces from the outside. Then we asked him, okay, you think that, but what about the whole Palestinian leadership? We said, they'll all approve. On this platform, they will all approve. So we asked him, can you put all this in writing? So as soon as the two officers left, Aziz sat his son Raja on the Hermes baby typewriter and began dictating. He was very excited. He thought, he thought this is the moment that the, the conflict can be resolved. He was very excited. He shut himself up uh, in the room and, and wrote it. Nobody had, uh, was allowed to bother him. And he was, had a great capacity for concentrating. And he concentrated and did it. The document still has some of the uh, typing mistakes that I made. Early the next morning, on the sixth and final day of the war, Dan and Dave showed up at Aziz's doorstep. As promised, Aziz handed them a typed copy of his peace proposal, along with a list of 43 dignitaries whom he believed would support it. Then we went off to check the list that we received from Aziz. By now, the two officers had all but forgotten about their original mission, reopening the Hashemite broadcasting station, and focused instead on a new, slightly more ambitious goal, making peace with the Palestinians. And so, as the last battles on the Golan Heights were winding down, two unarmed reservists in khakis drove up and down the West Bank. Between the south of Hebron and up to Jenin, 
Karem, Shechem. Meeting with top Palestinian leaders, governors, ministers, mayors, businessmen. And almost every one of them said, it's a very good idea, I'm in. They managed to interview all 43 people on Aziz's list in just under three days. When they were done, they drove back to HQ and reported that while they didn't get very far with finding Mr. Uday and reinstating his radio station, they might just have stumbled onto something a bit bigger. So as the entire country was busy rejoicing, planning military parades, designing victory albums, awarding medals and other such manifestation of a country patting itself on the back, Dan and Dave sat down with their notes and drafted a report. מדינה זו תבקש להתקבל לאום. המדינה תהיה קשורה למדינת ישראל בהסכמי הגנה, כלכלה, תיירות. They made four copies and sent them out. To Ashkol, the Prime Minister, to Dayan, Minister of Defense, Sapir, Minister of Finance, Yigal Alon, Deputy Prime Minister, Minister of Labor. Then they patiently waited to hear back from one of the statesmen. Only hope, only hope. Hope and hope for luck. But no one responded. Dayan says that uh, he is waiting for a telephone call from Jordan or Egypt or Syria. He got a telephone call, not even a long-distance call, from Ramallah. But the line was busy. That's Akiva Eldar, a journalist who's been covering the conflict for more than 30 years. I'm old enough to, to remember that the message that we got from the highest echelons was that the Arabs keep saying no and Israel wants peace. In a way, it was true until 67. At the time Aziz, Dan and Dave were outlining a peace agreement, Akiva was studying at the Hebrew University. As a student in 67 who lived in West Jerusalem, behind the walls, we really didn't realize that there are people on the other side of the wall. And if there are people there, uh, they wake up in the morning and are asking themselves, where is the, the Jew that we can kill? People who believe that we can make peace were naive, were even ridiculed. But Dan and Dave came from the heart of the establishment. They weren't Abi Natans or Uri Avneris, types that could easily be dismissed as fringy members of the radical left. Yet Aziz, Dan, and Dave's peace proposal, today it's just another piece of paper. One of millions of pages collecting dust in the archives of the Israeli Ministry of Defense. Dan still has a hard time getting over it. I'm a Sabre. I grew up. I fought in the War of Independence. I lived through to 1967. I married. We had four children by that time. And then came the Six-Day War, and it was our opportunity. And we missed everything we missed. It was our opportunity, and we were fucked up. Akiva, who spent many hours talking to Dave Kimchi about the saga, reported similar feelings. Dave Kimchi... Uh went to grave with grapes of wrath, with, with bitter feeling. I think that they even felt that maybe their friends have lost their lives because of this missed opportunity. That maybe the Yom Kippur war was not inevitable. For them it was traumatic. 
because they had to go to bed every night and wake up every morning with the feeling that they had it. They, they held it in their hands and the, their leaders, the people in whom they believed, just let it go. At least he knew that he tried. Aziz Shadeh was also disappointed. He never lived to see how similar his proposal was to the document Arafat and Rabin would sign 25 years later on the White House lawn. On a cold evening in December 1985, Aziz was stabbed to death outside of his home in Ramallah. The case has never been solved. Almost everyone involved in this story has long since passed away. Dan Bavli is basically the last man standing. Now, we often like our stories to have a neat, tidy ending, but this one doesn't have that. The silence with which the proposal was met, it didn't stop any of the folks from believing that one day we'll be able to live together. I'm only 87 and a half, so I don't have all that much time, but, but I'm optimistic. <laughs> I often believe that things happen around the corner which you don't see, and it happens quite suddenly. Yochai Meital. Before we sign off, I want to remind you that we're organizing a really fun Israel story trip to Israel. You'll be visiting the scene of action of many of our stories and meeting some of the wonderful characters we profiled. I know I'm looking forward to this, and if you are too, you can easily find out more details at israelstory-trip.com. Or just email us at trip at israelstory.org. As always, you can hear all our previous episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes and any of the other main podcast platforms. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you'd like to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, which you really, really should, it's easy. Just email us at sponsor at prx.org. All the original music in today's episode was composed and performed by the amazing trio of Ronnie Wagner, Ruth Danone, and Eden Jamshit. They also wrote the song that ends the episode, It's Time, which was recorded and mixed at the Mitzlol Studios in Tel Aviv. Elon Perry and Jonathan Barak were the recording technicians. This episode was mixed by the one and only Sela Weisblum and produced in partnership with Libby Lenkinski and the New Israel Fund. A special thanks to Dor Danino, who pitched the story to us and produced the Hebrew version. He also did a lot of the research for the English piece. Thanks also to Benny Becker and Israel Goldwicht, to Federica Sasso for patiently schlepping to Hebron and Tel Aviv, to Jeremy Ben-Ami, Courtney Rohrbach, Dan Kalik, Jessica Rosenblum, Rabbi Elliot Tepperman from Bnei Keshet in Montclair, New Jersey, and all of our NIF friends. Aaron Back, Orly Bein, David Schmidt-Chapman, Ayelet Cohen, Hannah Ellenson, 
טלי הרשקוויץ, ג'אן קאליש, מאי פונדק, סטיב רוטמן, דניאל סוקאץ', אייל ירושלמי, and of course, of course, to the unbeatable duo of Shannon Reimers and Libby Linkinski. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roi Gilron, Maya Kosover, and Rachel Fisher. Zev Levi and Aviva de Kornfeld are our wonderful production interns. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a brand new Israel Story episode. So, till then, yalla bye! truth and sweep away the lie climb the fences tear the most down if you listen hard you can hear the sound this courage courage to love friend or foe willing to rise above all the sad tales is just told knowing every enemy has a hand you can hold cause one You see it, it can be unseen Once you hear it, it can be unheard Talk it out, sing it out, shout it out loud And sweep away the lie Climb the fences Tear the walls down If you listen hard